Yes, hello and welcome to the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is episode 24. Are you going to be at Scrum Day Orange County? It's at the Fairfield Inn in Tustin on March 13th. I'll be there to run the pair coaching domino game. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a hoot. Good morning, gentlemen. So it is another fine, agile coffee morning. Thank you again for your time being here and for listening to us as well. Uh, my name is Victor Bonacci. This is Agile Coffee. I am joined this morning by my great friends, John Jorgensen. Good morning again. At Water Scrum Bond, Brett Palmer. Hi. At Brett underscore Palmer and Larry Lawhead. Yes, I have my own Twitter. At Larry Lawhead. <laughs> You still have your Hotmail account. Oh, yes, I do, of course. Okay. Uh, I we all couldn't give that up for anything. That's Lawhead5 <laughs> at Hotmail. So reach out to any of us. I can be reached at Agile Coffee. So um, let's, uh, let's just jump right into it. The rules of Lean Coffee uh, require us each to write up as many cards as we want, whether, if it's optional, of course. If you don't want to write a card, you don't have to. And uh, we're going to go around now and just summarize what each of our cards is, uh, starting with Framework Regression Pain. Yes, so... In addition to the code regressing, actually there are instances where frameworks, agile frameworks, have regressed to the point that it becomes painful to the participants. And those participants are sometimes aware that that's the cause of their their suffering. And when they go the second time around for like a restart, they're very careful that they have something to stop the regression. Next, Larry, it says types of product owners. Yeah, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. I have uh, two types of product owners in my mind, and I thought it would be interesting to hear about your experiences with dealing with uh, product owners. I like dealing with people, motivating people, understanding people, and I thought there's probably a lot of knowledge here at the table that I could uh, learn from. Excellent. Speaking of excellence, circle of excellence matters. Yes, so a circle of excellence is one way that an organization grows within a framework. It's very important. Uh, the, the hard question to answer is at what point is an organization ready to create a circle of excellence? Are you talking about like an agile, agile community yeah. like an agile community of practice? Exactly. Okay. We have a card that says the power of standing for agile. So this is a little bit of a pun if uh, any landmarkers are out there, uh, the power of standing for something. I'm specifically referring to the physical act of standing on two feet while you do agile activities and what hidden powers actually come from that and how to use applied improv as a coach to get that to happen. Next we have Agile Budgeting. Yes, agile I, Budgeting. I, I, it's my card. I got this book, Agile Budgeting and Planning, at the uh, Christmas party. Now, I did – I made a mistake. I loaned it out to the to our CEO, and he hasn't given it back to me yet because he's still <laughs> working through it. But I, I wanted that book uh, because I wanted to avoid all the pitfalls of trying to place a budgeting – framework on top of the scrum environment it doesn't work really mm-hmm. and um, so i came up i read i had a chance to read one chapter out of it 
I started working on a model, I, and I have a model. I thought I'd explain it to you guys and see if you could uh, beat me up a little bit on it to see if it actually will stand the test. Sounds, sounds great. Mm-hmm. Terrorists and – oh, me- method? Methodologists. Methodologists. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this is, this is based on a pun, which is, um, you know, the, the difference between a terrorist and a methodologist is at least you can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but seriously, this is a topic about um, how we can be more flexible as methodologists and agile practitioners to avoid just being rigidly ideological. Excellent, excellent. Uh, The next card, just making up rules. Yeah, and so this is about the dangers of creating creating patterns where they don't exist, deciding that there need to be limitations where not necessarily so. Um, And I I can see that happening um, inside myself and maybe inside of teams and with other coaches. And so it's tricky. We'd be interested in talking about it. Roles in pair coaching is a card that I put down. Pair coaching is something that I talk about from time to time. And in light of your first two weeks and what I've heard from you talking about some of the other coaches that you're working with, I'm wondering if you've had opportunity to pair up in uh, any of the roles that I'll probably go over about four or five of them. See if there's other roles that we can think of uh, for pair coaching and if uh, if value is in play for that. Mm-hmm. Next is user story mapping. Yeah, Dale mentioned this uh, during our last podcast. He'd finished the book. I'm uh, working on it now. It's it's uh, user story mapping from Jeff Patton's really good book, um, and I'm not through reading it, but I thought I would get a discussion about this going if we if we know enough. That deal's not here today, so I'm not sure if it's going to work. But today we have a question from the hashtag Ask Agile Coffee. Comes from Mike Lavery at Bacon Philosophy. Hey, Mike. He asks. He says, first, initial product backlog meetings are always toughest with new teams. Are there best practices for moderating the meeting? Impressive. That's, yeah, that's a, a good question. One. That's a good one. And so we have prioritized our most dots belongs to a card that says Agile Budgeting. Yeah, so uh, Larry, I had a comment about that. Just last night I was preparing for the ACP exam, and I had a question which I missed, which was on net present value. And it's actually a very simple calculation, and the um, the answer was quoting Mike Cohn's, um, I think it's Agile Estimating and Planning. Um, one of his books is what it was from, which surprised me because I traditionally thought of budgeting as more like of a waterfall practice, but apparently it's not. And I think... Um, there are other books on agile budgeting besides the one um, that you uh, happen to mention, mm-hmm. and um, it might not be such a rare practice after all, especially the larger the, the corporations that do it, and maybe if they have many different products in their portfolio. Yes, but um, I'm interested. Like, uh, what did you? What did? What did your boss see in it so far that was the most interesting? Um, it's just the fact that. We don't have to go through and try to hammer out the man hours. You know, like the first two questions you're always asked is, when can it be done and uh, how much is this going to cost? And then the cost is always based on uh, duration, uh, man hours. And no one knows how long it's going to take. And so I've been trying to 
help us help the enterprise understand that we're talking about time boxes here. Mm -hmm. And if we get used to that, that's yeah. pretty good. I was in a meeting yesterday, and I was able to, based on all this thinking I've done about budgeting, I was able to say uh, this will be done in um, two sprints from now. That'll be in the date is this, and uh, and I think it's decomposed to to um, it's decomposed enough that we can get it in, and that's a different way of looking at it rather than trying to guess. Well, you know, five years ago I was on a project and it took this long, so it probably <laughs> would take that much longer. And and I understand that you know in the PMBOK the um, there's there's a huge section on budgeting and planning it's, mm -hmm. but you you never get it right you mm -hmm. never get it right and this True. this um the the models that i'm seeing here are based on the performance of the team mm -hmm. the the team can do 250 story points in a, in a three-week sprint mm -hmm. and based on that and you can see that they do this time and time again and they're getting better at it mm -hmm. uh you already know what you can what you can do if you can give an idea of how many story points this is going to represent and then that automatically then gives you your um your budget for that that product backlog item even if it's at a high level at least you're closer than just guessing so what if the organization though wants to be able to track capex versus opex okay so you've got a sprint team right that's churning away work right some of those user stories are on certain areas of software that are might be like maintenance, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Bug fixes. And that would be under like operations. Mm -hmm. Whereas some of uh, the work that this team is going to be doing those sprints is going to be based on capital expenses, new work, new development, mm -hmm. brand new initiatives. So when you are working with agile budgets, how do you break that down to be able to quantify to the dollar level Mm-hmm. What portion do you just take like, okay, you got 44. I would think you take like, okay, if the team's velocity is 40 points, how many points was it? What, you know, what percent of points was based on 40? You would figure out what the cost of that sprint was, and then you could take that percentage for that OPEX work. I don't know. That might be one way of doing you, it. You could create just... I mean, this may sound repugnant, but you could create buckets and have hours of maintenance and bug fixing going into that bucket. And over time, you know, because you're not creating new bugs, you eventually burn through your, your bug backlog and other, you know, professional services slash customer um, support stuff. But there's there. I think that there is actually a fairly um, large set of writings and knowledge around agile budgeting budgeting some of it is in the dean leffingwell camp right. some of it is in the mike cone camp and and maybe even jim highsmith might have written about it i wonder larry if we can go back to your original question when you when you said that you think maybe you made a mistake because you gave your book to the ceo and i want to i want to ask you if you think it was a mistake because if he's reading it this is going to come you know be beneficial but but take it a step further just 
buy a second copy of the book for yourself <laughs> and gift it, gift him the one that I you see. Yeah, okay, we can do that. Get, get some credit. What's the name of this book again? Uh, Agile Budgeting and Planning. I, I believe it's from Mike Cohn. Right? I believe Mike mm-hmm. Cohn has already sent uh, copies of his Agile Estimating and Planning book to us for the coach camp. Yeah. Oh, wow, excellent. Right. So, so I might be able to get a copy yes, that way might. if I wait. Well, don't wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, what I've done is um, I've, I've broken everything down to – I figured out how much our team cost – uh, the, co- the the organization per week, and then that gives me then for a three week sprint it's going to be yes. this much, and then I divide it by how many story points do we have? Well, mm-hmm. the k- team commits itself to about two hundred story points a sprint, so then I, I have a price per story point. I like using story mm-hmm. points because it's a the lowest common denominator. It's a very sensitive amount, so if you start playing with your story points, mm-hmm. your 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 budget or your 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 uh, how mu- your costs f- of production, your production costs are, go up and down real easy. Very true. Very true. So this has worked out well for me. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our first card. Great, great. The next card says the power of standing for Agile. And before John tells us his experiences with it, I want to say that there's a another podcast, uh, Agile FM. And um, my friend Eve was uh, interviewed not too long ago. Of course, he's of the pair coaching um, uh, mindset. Also, he was talking about this walking desk that he has mm-hmm. and how it recommends that you get something like 15,000 steps in a day, mm-hmm. and he gets 15,000 steps in before lunch. So he just powers through 15,000 steps is like seven and a half miles. It's not much, but everything that he's doing, <laughs> even when he was recording that podcast, uh, which mm-hmm. is only back in January, I think, or, or not long ago, um, he was walking as he was doing it, and they'd I guess before they went on the air, he said you might have to slow down because, you know, we could hear you. But, but he was still walking as he was doing it, and you couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he was saying what I'm expecting you're going to say. So I'm going to turn yeah. it back, to, back over to you. Yeah, and so it, it has to do with just uh, your mental processes. When you're standing up, your brain gets more oxygen. And when you're standing up, you're, you're at a higher point on your horizon. You're thinking in different ways, and especially – um, you know this. When when people are standing together, they can be physically more proximate to each other than mm-hmm. when they're sitting at a desk and looking at separate computer screens. So when people are huddled around, you know, a whiteboard and they're talking about a design or they're planning a sprint or or something, there's more interaction. And in the book uh, called The Human Side of Agile, mm-hmm. um, they mention that when people are more than ten meters away they're much less likely to ask a question, voice a concern, or start collaborating. So That's what makes these lean coffees so popular, right? right. Because we're all sitting here together. together. Yeah. That's why I also have been resisting having the dial-in person because I'm not sure mm-hmm. how that would add to the dynamics. It could change it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so my point is that when you tell somebody, hey, like, let's all close the laptops or let's all stand at the board, they go, uh-huh, and then they just keep typing. <laughs> and that's, that's a challenge when, let's say, you're an external consultant or you're, you're a coach, and you, you would really be doing yourself a discredit by trying to tell people what to do. And so it, became, it becomes a game, really, of persuading somebody so subtly that they don't really notice that they're standing. Mm-hmm. And um, I've started experimenting with things like um, getting markers and extending them at arm's length but 
far enough away that somebody will take it and and stand up to get it and then go to the board with it or something um, or you know having having physical cards and magnets to put something on a board and say okay I, you know I have the cards right here sure you can also have the like I start retrospectives typically off with the uh, seismograph, the emotional seismograph Perfect. on a whiteboard, and I exactly. say everyone grab a color and fill it out. So yeah. that's a fun, active thing. They don't really think about standing up, no. but maybe while they're up, then you can say, "Hey, while you're standing." And, and it's self-expressive, right? With that, with that happiness meter, and and people want to express themselves. That's like a basic, fundamental drive that I think we have. So, is there anything related to the physiology, which is kind of where I was totally. thinking maybe you're going yes. to go to? Absolutely, yeah. that. So, if you influence people's physiology, you influence their psychology. These are inseparably linked, and so. You want to do things that actually move people physically to move them emotionally. And it and it's it's there's a million ways to ruin that, and there are probably a few ways to, to make it succeed. And I was thinking, so I did an exercise at an improv class that I take up in, uh, I think it's Fullerton, isn't it? Um, and one of them was you have a line of people standing, and then you have someone sitting in the seat. And the person in the seat in the head of line make a couple, a partnership, I guess you could say, an improv, and they have to just start inventing some dialogue and interaction that ends when the person in the seat stands. So I was thinking this is a great exercise for coaches to learn of ways of creating scenes where it ends with the team standing. So it's the team member in the seat, and they can be in front of a computer, and now you're creating a dialogue. And, of course, you know, it's a simulation, so the person in the seat can be as ornery or as cooperative as they want to. But, like, my personal belief is, like, this is something that a really good coach must master. You must have a thousand ways of finding to elicit people to arise and engage. That is, like, part and parcel because of, of our gig because all you need is a shift, you need to create a mental shift in your team. It can be just one degree, and all kinds of possibilities unlock. But if you leave them in the same state of same frame of mind that you found them in, then it will be as though you were never involved. So I'm 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 thinking of like you know maybe at coach camp or someplace with other coaches where I can say, let's do this exercise and let's just drive it into the ground. Let's do it as much as we can. Make it as fun as we can. But for heaven's sakes, learn, because this is so important, I think. There were so many things that you could do. You know, there are so many things. And, and it's just fun. Once you start trying them, then you, your mind opens up to like, oh, well, if I could do that, then I could do this too. And it yeah, makes exactly. sense to do it here. You know, my, um, my grandfather... Uh, visited uh, a lot of uh, religious events. Uh, he was evangelical. Uh, and uh, the, this might sound a little unusual, but they, they followed that. They got you to stand up. They did something that moved you to to do to make a decision. They got you to stand up. Mm-hmm. And then once you stood up, you, you went forward and you made a decision. And that whole process is the same thing as I think John was talking about you. You challenge their thinking. You get them to physically do something. Oh, yeah. And then it leads them to this decision point. It opens up 
so many different passageways in, in our, our thinking and our doing. Um, the fact that you're standing up. If you're, first of all, if you're standing up, your muscles are engaged. They're yes. keeping you balanced. And it gets your brain going. And Yeah, so your brain is working a different way. Um, and it gets the blood pumping a yeah. little bit more, so, so that's always good. I like the, the personal engagement. I have noticed that when I uh, draw the team to the board for retrospectives, for them to post something up there and explain what they've posted – Everybody gets more engaged right away. And then once that person's finished with his presentation, he goes back to his little corner, but he's much more engaged. Mm-hmm. What other what other meetings or um, what other so ceremonies, I guess, uh, yeah. in, in the Scrum framework could so you work this into? I, Any I, kind of plannings? Yeah, so mm-hmm. definitely uh, you have release planning. I think that the portfolio backlog or program backlog mm-hmm. – uh, creation would work best with people on their feet. I think that doing um, what um, writing epics actually. Oh, and uh, maybe even prioritizing them. So if you tell them to write, they could just sit and write. But maybe it's, they're writing on um, tearboard papers up on the wall. Yeah, you know? cover the walls with like butcher paper, and you know specifically um, speaking it as they're writing it, so everybody around them is is hearing and having mm. ideas and writing it mm. in other places. Offering and, suggestions. And, yeah, and maybe you're doing the, the, the groupings at different areas of the room, but, you know, bringing things, um, bringing things together. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure, like, all the applicable places, but I think you could find a lot if, if it meant something. Did we talk about on the podcast the uh, six thinking hats and the exercise know. that we did? Maybe a little. Because, you know, that was like working people around stations and there's yes. the, the walk the gallery. Exactly. There's a Sharon Bowman. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah standing is good. Standing is Stand good. Stand for Agile. Hey, speaking of standing for Agile, you can make your voice heard by using the hashtag TellAgileCoffee or ask Agile Coffee on Twitter and be part of the conversation just like Mike Lavery did. Mike Lavery on Twitter at Bacon Philosophy. Mm. Mm, bacon. <laughs> asks asks this question. He used the hashtag Ask Agile Coffee. So he says, um, initial product backlog meetings are always toughest with new teams. And he asks, are best practices, what are there, or are there best practices for moderating the meeting? Well, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate to steal Larry's thunder because he could probably tell you he has the book or the Bible on creating backlogs, and that is the story mapping exercise. Yeah. If I had to do something that was very high level, like, you know, where the oxygen's really thin, I would go with a story mapping exercise um, with all of the business owners and key stakeholders to start it off, and then I would build a deep backlog from there. And I don't, I mean, I don't know many people that would say that, that, um, you know, there's something better than that to kick off. Like, you're just at inception of a backlog. Um, But I'm interested if, if there are more exercises that we could collectively squeeze out there's there's probably variants or yeah it's interesting I, I guess moderating and facilitating is the same thing here you're facilitating this meeting and and maybe you as the the scrum master or a coach you aren't really active in the no. the backlog creation itself but you're doing more than one thing you're, you're not only helping facilitate what's going on but you're working with team members to un- get them to understand maybe um, how to write a good user story. You're working with the mm-hmm. product owner, certainly, to make sure that they have enough of the uh, um, the, the passion or the whatever is needed, the energy to kind of mm-hmm. steer the, the process and, and do their 
kind of due diligence on the on the overall process as well. That's very true, and I guess the uh, story mapping exercise is great for brand new product um, endeavors backlogs. But for something that's existing, you know, if there's a problem to solve, a customer problem to solve, maybe the six thinking hats is the best way to start it off. You know, just what is it that, you know, could possibly bring value and then vetting it, you know, using those different hats. That could be effective. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, all the other practices of breaking down large features or epics into stories and eventually tasks is is something that you know any agile practitioner could could learn about now when you're talking about six thinking hats what are you referring to oh there's a book uh edward de bono's got a uh, framework of using six different um modes of thinking okay and to make it apparent to the participants he he asks them to imagine that they're wearing a different colored hat oh, I see. so the blue hat describes like what's the process what's the expected outcome what's the time box that we're working in right now the white hat is uh oh, i'm gonna go way off aren't i uh the white hat is date uh, is data i believe um uh, green hat is creativity. There's a black hat for what can go wrong. There's a yellow hat for what's bright and sunny, and there's a red hat for what's. How do I feel about it? What's okay. the emotional response? Mm-hmm. And there so, if you green get hat too, the green is like creative solutions. Okay. Maybe yeah, the so green you would. So like it's just a, it's a framework for thinking about like what types of questions you want to engage yeah. the team in when they're thinking about different user stories. Then yeah, maybe using that in conjunction with user story mapping or some kind of kind of step before you're actually writing stories, uh, six thinking hats could come into play. But And there's there's so many variants that can be done on six thinking hats. You know, Vic and I were, were thinking like, okay, could we break into small teams and have the each member of the team have a different hat? So it's a, asynchronous thinking and six thinking hats or do we have like a process, like an assembly line, it goes from stage to stage, and you have entire teams of greens, entire teams of white, or right. Whatever. And that's what we ended up uh, doing was just mm-hmm. having them kind of self-organize into teams and move mm-hmm. from station to station. Each station being a different um, a different issue they need to discuss, and for mm-hmm. each they have to go through each of the six hats. So that's one um, one example. Now Mike's talking about a new team. So you've got a new team at play. Probably they're like a pizza team, a two pizza mm-hmm. team, right? Um, so not too big, not too small, and they're working with a brand new backlog. So you've got mm-hmm. two brand news at the at the start, a brand yeah. new team forming, mm-hmm. and and a brand new backlog being put together. So the the interesting problem to solve here is how do you define a story point and start your very first story yeah. point sizing? Right, yeah. this is tough, especially when you have teams that say like, not only have we never worked together. We can't imagine having a story that's shorter than, say, six months going soup to nuts, start to finish. You know, you've got, like, data, business logic, UI. That, you know, that, that happens. I've, I've experienced that before. And there's two routes that you can go. One is that you can calculate based on ideal mandates. You know, like for example, in Safe, it's one story point per developer per day. But then you give like so eight if you points have a, per two weeks. Yeah, eight yeah. points per two weeks sprint with the because idea of the that, overhead. Yeah, exactly. So you would have that, or or you would need to find out are there going to be other teams involved where you might want to normalize those points mm-hmm. across multiple teams. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that can work to a certain point until people start to game the system. So yeah. there's two other approaches. <clears throat> One is that you can intentionally say, okay, it's an imperfect world for the first sprint. We're going to make horizontal slices instead of vertical slices. And so maybe you're talking about just the business logic. If the team has done that, and they can all like say, okay, we have a standard benchmark story, albeit horizontal slice. Okay. Then the last one is let's play an imaginary game. Let's visualize what it would be like if we took this one story that we all understand and just beat that story up until everybody knows it back okay. to front. I've got a question. If you're, if you're slicing horizontally, though, then what's yeah. your value that's delivered at the end of that sprint? It's just a way of yeah. getting to know each other's like yeah. biases or when it comes yeah. to sizing and okay. stuff. I don't know if I would start by defining what is a story point. I would probably have them do the relative sizing first, you know, and break okay. things up. Okay. Um, deciding on what is a story point is is for them, the team, to decide, mm-hmm. and you just kind of moderate them and guide them through it. So eventually, it has to be done. Hmm. But I think when you're first doing this initial pass of the backlog, the initial product backlog meeting, the very first one. You're more at the the user story mapping or the affinity estimating, affinity estimating, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. breaking things down from the big iceberg into smaller chunks, mm-hmm. cubes that I could put in my drink. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a great question. I think we could go on more, but um, bacon philosophy. Let us know uh, if this helps. Yeah, I'm really curious. I, I hope it was relevant. I hope it was useful. Cool. Well, that brings us to a point where I want to pause and ask people to give us uh, some rating out on iTunes and Stitcher. Throw some stars our way, will you? That helps us out a lot. I mean, if, if there's anything that we could ask for, it's that. It's, it's your feedback on how we're doing. So the last card. Take it, John. Yeah. So framework regression pain. I, I was surprised uh, to find that there are large organizations that realize um, over – months or years, really, you can completely uh, go off into the weeds, leaving Agile behind and having only the words left. And then people who have been there, seen both states, you know, or actually three states, pre-Agile, real Agile, and post-Agile. Right, but is that... Because what causes that? Is that just the natural pendulum that's swifting between waterfall and agile? No, I think that, that it's. I think that it's actually um, it's political turmoil that masks itself in um, in frameworks and in, in process. And it's. But if they had real agile and they were getting value from it, why would they need to re-engineer it to the point that then they're going off in the weeds? That's a really good question. I think it has to do with like the meta person or the third entity, um, which means when you have thousands of people in an organization and all of their interactions end up meaning something, that there's this thing I'll call it psychic drift. So like you've you've got this alignment in the beginning and people are working in it and enjoying the constructive um, constructive disagreement and the trust that's there, but then that begins to give way to entropy or chaos and and then people start to distrust based on misunderstandings. Is it distrust or is it that people want to feel that need to contribute something and find value in them from themselves and so they're 
throwing their own misguided ideas into the pot, it becomes a big soup, and then before you know it, they're in the weeds. You're right, and it it could, like, yeah, I like your take better, that it's not not something devious. Yeah, why you got to be so negative, man? (laughs) I don't know. It's my natural state. (laughs) Um, so, So people... With the best of intentions, the right. sincere best of intentions are trying to improve on the framework, trying to customize it to the situation. And maybe there's something that's lacking in the scientific rigor that they, that they submit their experiments to. And then you, they do get these false rules right. and they get adopted. And right. then soon you have like not revolutionary, but evolutionarily arrived. At They're not wrong. really saying, okay, we've got a, we've got a stable process. Let's inject yeah. a change. Let's evaluate mm-hmm. it in two weeks and see if there is an improvement there. They're not doing right. that. They're just right. changing the process. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It, yeah. And so, you know, having not been present through that entire two or three years, let's mm-hmm. say, um, it's only my conjecture of how they arrived there. But the, the people who were there, the people who are complaining of this pain, mm-hmm. are saying, you know, we we did run off into the weeds. We somehow, like, we, we over-customized beyond recognition this framework. We need external um, entities to bring us back and guard the flame and, and keep us right. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that was, well, there needs to be a circle of excellence. Then the question becomes, well, so when are they ready to guard the flame and have that well, circle of excellence? When they understand enough about the process. Yeah, and that's a very subjective um, decision to make. Um, and I, I believe that it's best made by a group of people that are extremely experienced and, mm-hmm. and educated about what Agile is and is not. So none of us. And, and if you don't, yeah, have, I wouldn't but be if one you of them. don't yeah. have that within the organization, then how does the organization yes. stand up its own circle of excellence? That's a very good point. Well, it's you know, difficult. This is a difficult nut to crack. Right. You have to have those, those people within that organization mm-hmm. standing up for Agile. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so maybe... And here's, Bringing it full circle. That's right. Bringing full circle here. So maybe, maybe then what the mission of the, the Agile transformation expert is, I need to change mindsets to where people are absolutely um, captivated and engaged in learning what is Agile and becoming an expert internally, remaining internal for a long period of time and taking up that mantle of being a fixture in the circle of excellence and then the business saying this is this is a worthwhile investment that we need to make so um i don't know i'm i'm just making my first uh, baby steps into learning about what this really means and you know how to build a business case for it but it uh, it, it needs examination. Without it, I think this is the, the the framework regression pain is what results. I was thinking, based on my experience, you, you can get you, you're two hires away or one hire away from slipping away if you don't hold the reins real close. Mm-hmm. A new person joins the team, mm-hmm. and he's maybe been in an enterprise that said they did agile, but actually did, they did just stand ups or something. Yeah, and really they know have no idea of the, the framework, the reasons for what, why we do what we do. Yeah. And so at that point, at a very low level, the Scrum Master has to be con- continuously training, um, evangelizing. Yeah. And you, 
you can't let this slip at all at that level. And I think that's one way that this slips very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and what I've done also is try to get team members involved in agile communities mm-hmm. because you get into you get into the community. It just begins to get into the fiber of your thinking. Mm-hmm. And then a uh, third approach I've taken is get try to talk your organization into getting some formal training. Yeah. I had a situation where I had a lot of resistance in the team mm-hmm. S- through some miracle. Uh, five of them were able to go to scrum training. They came back yeah. totally. They didn't mm-hmm. just drink the Kool-Aid. They took <laughs> showers <laughs> in it. And it was <laughs> from that point forward, it was a done deal. Yeah. But even what, even after you get this benchmark cooperation going it just takes a couple of new hires and you're back at it again yeah that's true someone was mentioning to me at the beginning of a boot camp that they would have people make the name tense and put a check if you've ever worked on an agile project with an agile team an x if you've ever been in waterfall and blank if you've never been in either and he said you know people mark it up and the ones who he he says to the room those of you who've been in Agile, um, would you ever consider going back to Waterfall? And the the people would stand up and say, "Not in my life. I would I would leave I would leave the company if they said we're consciously deciding to go to Waterfall." So maybe locking that in from the start delivers a very important message to the people that um, are maybe fence sitters or have done some toe dipping but don't really know whether it produces different results and a different way of of working. So, um, yeah, I think there is a responsibility among those who are experienced to to be clear about what it is and and what they're willing to do for it. And there's a responsibility of us to be here to produce our own Lean Coffee podcast podcast. for you, the audience, make sure that you fulfill your responsibility to reach out to us on Twitter with the hashtags TellAgileCoffee. Let us know if any of these framework regression uh, pain points have been hitting home with you. I want to thank real quick uh, my, my fellow Agilists here today, John Jorgensen. Thanks for being here. It's been a pleasure again. Brett Palmer. Thank you. Fine having you, as well as Larry Lawhead. It's always fun. It is always fun. So please join us again for another exciting time of Agile Coffee. Agile Coffee.